thank you, John, for leading us in prayer. And of course, again, happy Father's Day to everyone. And I hope you have a wonderful day celebrating however you plan on doing that today. And uh, it's good to be back with you. I hope you enjoyed my friend Jack Cruz, who was here last week. Anybody of you get to hear Jack preach? He's one of our district representatives for EFCA West and a longtime pastor at the Blairstown Evangelical Free Church. Uh, so he was really encouraged by all of you. Thank you for making him feel so welcome, and he enjoyed bringing the Word of God to you uh, last week. Well, today we're going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, two Sundays ago, when I talked from the Gospel of Luke, we were very encouraged by the example that we saw in Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 38, it says, she said to the angel, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And we learned that one of Luke's purposes in telling us this story about Mary is because Mary is also a model example of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. She's a model disciple, a model in that story we learned of wonder at what God is doing and how great he is, a model of faith for believing what the Lord says, a model of holiness and servitude to the Lord, and just of receiving God's goodness in her life. And she caused us to reflect upon our own lives and to persevere through some of the same struggles that we all have. We want to be able to take God at his word just like she did. We want to be able to give ourselves up completely to the will of the Lord to do what he has for us to do. We want to likewise be pondering what a blessing it is, what a privilege to have received grace from God. But you know, we're going to learn again today in our passage that not only was Mary a model of discipleship, she's a model of joy in our lives. I mean, think about your life so far in 2021. We're about halfway through. How is your faith and your joy holding up as a Christian so far this year? Hopefully, it's growing. Hopefully, it's strong. But if it's somewhat weak, perhaps the Word of God this morning today will move your faith forward and increase your joy. At least that's our hope and our prayer this morning. That's Luke's goal. One of them, as he tells us this next story in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you so much for your blessings in our life, especially for the grace of salvation that you've bestowed upon us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Lord and our Savior and our King. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would accomplish the goal of the Word and increase our faith and our hope and our joy especially this morning. Amen. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 39, and we'll be going all the way through verse 56, and be ready to experience the joy of Mary, the mother of our Lord, as we go through. You'll notice that the emphasis in our story falls on verse 45, so take a brief look at verse 45 for a moment, and here it says, Elizabeth is speaking to Mary and says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You know, it's a very simple truth that we're going to be learning this morning from this passage, and that is that God blesses those who, like Mary, believe his word. In fact, that's probably the first principle 
of spiritual growth. If you want to grow in your life spiritually, the very first thing you need to learn is to just take God at his word, to believe what you read in the scriptures. And Luke is telling us the story really of the meeting of the two mothers, Elizabeth and Mary. And through this story, two promises are given to us. First, in verses 39 to 45, the promise is that those who believe will be blessed by the Lord. The second, in verses 46 to 56, what we learn is that those who believe will have great joy in the Lord. Now, we're going to read the story as it unfolds this morning. And as I mentioned before, and you've probably understood already in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that we've got two stories going in parallel. We have the story of John the Baptist being told, and we have the story of Jesus the Savior being told, and, and they go back and forth. Uh, the Luke goes back and forth between the two stories. Last two Sundays, the beginning of the book starts off with two birth announcements. Uh, Gabriel speaks to Elizabeth and announces the birth of John and how great he would be, and then announces to Mary the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and of course, how ultimately glorious he would be. Well, in our passage today, these two storylines come together, and the two mothers finally meet. And it's a great celebration. Both have received the initial fulfillments of their annunciations. They're both with child. They're both pregnant. Of course, Mary will soon give birth to the divine Messiah for the world. And Elizabeth, before that, will give birth to the, his prophetic forerunner, John the Baptist. You know, Luke likes to see joy in Christians. You'll see that as we study the book together. Joy is a constant theme in the Gospel of Luke. And here we're supposed to celebrate along with the women and celebrate the truth that we learn that God blesses those who simply believe his word. So the first promise to believe, those who believe is that you'll be blessed. And we begin in verses 39 to 45. Mary greets Elizabeth, the beginning part of the paragraph, and then Elizabeth blesses Mary. So in verses 39 to 41 we read, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know the exact relationship between Mary and Elizabeth. We know that they are relatives. If you look back in verse 36, behold, the angel says to Mary, your relative Elizabeth in her old age is also conceived. So, but soon after the angel spoke this word and, and announced that there would be a sign to you, Mary, she takes off in response to go see the sign. And that's what we read in verses 36 and 37. She has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. She probably set out shortly after verse 38, likely after her own <clears throat> conception by the Holy Spirit, as we read back in verse 35 and then 38 again. And the angel uh, answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, you, to the child to be born to you will be called holy, the Son of God. And then we read in verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this journey from Nazareth up in Galilee to the southern hill country south of Jerusalem will be about an 80-mile journey and take three or four days. And as soon as Mary 
greets Elizabeth, the baby in her womb leaps and leaps for joy. It's mentioned both in verse 41 and 42. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's key. We shouldn't get sidetracked, as many have, by discussing the physiology of the baby John, you know, leaping beside, that's really besides the point and misses the beauty of the whole moment. We don't understand how it could be that John would know the presence of his Savior and his mother. The point is, is that Elizabeth in this passage acts as a prophetess. She's filled with the Holy Spirit and she declares that this is the case. And that is her interpretation, the precise truth of the situation that we will read about in verses 42 to 45 when she gives her prophecy. This isn't just some cute or ignorant statement of a pre-scientific female mind of many commentators have tried to insert into the text. You see, our modernist perspective obscures the beauty and the truth of Scripture and can cause us to miss exactly what it is that God wants us to see. God's ways are way beyond our ways. These are two miracles that we're experiencing in this text this morning. And the puny minds that we have as human beings, no matter how brilliant we are, God simply laughs at our prideful understandings of things that go beyond what he declares for us in Scripture. So her interpretation is precisely the truth of what's going on. John recognizes the presence of Jesus. Some think this is also when John was actually filled with the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of verse 15, but it's not exactly clear if that is here or later. But Elizabeth's filled with the Spirit, and that's the point because she's the one that's going to speak in a moment in verses 42 to 45. Mary might have told her the story about the angel. We don't really know. There's a lot we don't know. But we get the impression as we read through Luke and we experience the story as it's written and given to us in Scripture that it's the Holy Spirit that enlightened Elizabeth about Mary's condition, how it happened, and exactly who her baby would be. The Holy Child. And then Elizabeth then blesses Mary, and it begins in verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud voice. She's prophesying. She exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth declares with this loud voice, the blessing, it's so loud that we can hear it from 2,000 years ago. We can, she's been meditating on this for six months. If you look back in verse 25, after the announcement to her, it says, then she goes off, she kept herself hidden, and she says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away the, my reproach among people. Well, now it finally comes out, this meditation of blessings she's been having and wondering what God is going to be doing new in the history of redemption. Elizabeth's holy inspired prophecy is declaring clearly that Mary is the most blessed among women and that her child is the most blessed above all. Mary is the most blessed because precisely of who that holy child is. It is none other than the 
incarnate, eternal Son of God. In verse 43 is a question of astonished delight for her own blessing, Elizabeth, of having received this visitation, to receive the visitation of the mother of her Lord, of our Lord. And Lord here is intended to be read as Jesus Christ in particular. He is the King. He is the divine King who has finally come, promise for centuries, millennia. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And in all of this, the coming birth then of John would be reinforced to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and to us as readers as well as a confirmation of God's work. And the movement in Elizabeth's womb is John, the forerunner, recognizing the Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, of Malachi's prophecies, of the forerunner of the Messiah. Now there's both an important and actually a contemporary interesting theological question that arises here. Maybe some of you have heard it, and that is, should we call Mary the mother of God? You may know some people who like to use that phrase and refer to Mary as the mother of God. You may know other people who take the opposite view and say, don't ever call Mary the mother of God. Well, the early church fathers, the Greek fathers, spoke of, of Mary as the Theotokos, and it became known as the Theotokos controversy. This is a brief aside, church history lesson number one. So, so, and they would refer to her as the God-bearer or the mother of God. Now, certainly we're not supposed to understand that somehow a human being created God. Mary didn't give birth to God as if she created God. That's nonsense. Nor are we supposed to understand that somehow Jesus Christ is all of who God is in his glorious triune nature. But the term is a very proper and orthodox way of upholding the deity of Jesus Christ. The term can be used very inappropriately, however, if we use it in some sense to exalt Mary beyond what is appropriate. Those are the two issues. And so, as we might expect, this term became quite a term of controversy. It was actually upheld as an appropriate term to call Mary the mother of God, upheld at the ecumenical councils of Ephesus in 431 and Chalcedon in 451. And the reason they upheld it is because it's a fitting way to reference the deity of Jesus Christ. That's why. So, to call Mary the mother of God is certainly true, but only if we use it in the right sense. And we have to be very cautious because it might appear to be a much more confusing term than a helpful term these days. But you know what? Confusing terms can be very helpful because they can help us start conversations with people that are confused about the very same concepts. There are wonderful ways to start a conversation about the gospel. Well, verse 45, back to our text, is, this is the key verse, the one of a whole passage. Mary is pronounced blessed by Elizabeth precisely because she believed the word through the angel Gabriel that came from God, that God would fulfill his word. Now, normally, it's the husband in this time and culture that would be giving the blessing, but you remember what happened to Zacharias because he didn't believe the word? He was deaf and mute. He couldn't really say much. Well, of course, he believes at this point, and he's full of joy, and he's going to burst out in song in the next section, verses 68 to 79. 
He'll have his own song to sing. But blessing, you see, comes in believing that God will fulfill his word, not just in believing after we see his word fulfilled. Blessing can come to us twice, not just in receiving what he has promised, but by believing in advance that what he said would come true. Perhaps you realize this from your own life. There have been those times that it was very difficult for you to believe that God was going to be doing something, and then he answers your prayer. And you think to yourself, I wish I wouldn't have doubted so much. I wish I would have believed more strongly earlier, because then I would have had a double blessing of both believing beforehand and believing afterhand. You see, blessing comes to those who can live in God's favor like Mary, who know that by faith, God is going to accomplish wonderful things for his people. He's committed to us as his people. Those who believe are blessed by the Lord, so believe now for blessing in your life. Notice that it's written in a very general statement here. God just blesses those who believe in him. It's meant to apply to all of us. It's Elizabeth's point. It doesn't just apply to Mary. It applies to all of us. This is Luke's point. This is God's point for us, for you and for me. And notice also that he talks about fulfillment. She talks about blessed is he who believes the fulfillment of the word. And that takes us back to the very first verse of the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote his whole gospel to show us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promises. He's the fulfillment for how our sins are going to be dealt with. He's the fulfillment for all righteousness that we all long for in this world. It's a call to faith here, really, at the end of Elizabeth's prophecy, for more faith from everybody who reads this gospel account, a faith in Jesus, that he is the Son of God who's come from heaven. He's the promised king. He's the savior of mankind. So I would encourage you to believe in Jesus to take away your sins. By his cross and his resurrection, you can have salvation. And for all of us to believe even more strongly that he's coming again. He reigns in heaven on high right now, as has already been spoken of in the Gospel of Luke, and he's coming back. And when he returns, he will be in open glory, and his kingdom will have no end. So with this incarnation of the Son of God that we're reading about, God started fulfilling his radical promises of this new age from the old covenant that was given. And of course, those of us who live in the age of the new covenant, after beholding Jesus Christ and believing in the Holy Spirit, we have an even greater conviction and assurance of the things to come. As with both Mary and Elizabeth, blessings will overflow in the soul of the one who awaits with faith and looks forward to what God will do. God blesses those who, like Mary, simply Believe God for what he has said. The second promise to believers in the word is that those who believe are going to have great joy in the Lord. And so we move on to the second section. Mary's Magnificat, it is known in Latin. Mary's Magnificat, starting in verse 48 through 55. And that's just simply the Latin for the very first word. It's probably there in your English. The first word is magnify. The first word is exalt in some of your translations. The first word might be glorify. This is the first major song in Luke's gospel account. 
It's a four-part hymn. It's based on Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Very similar story. A lot of parallels. Hannah and the birth of Samuel. You can look up that on your own. But Hannah also extolled God for his mercy in turning her humiliation into a great blessing. Mary's song contains so many Old Testament concepts, references, allusions, phraseology. In fact, there's no possible way that we can explore all of that together this morning. It's something for further exploration and meditation on your own. But this song that she composes transcends the promises of the Old Testament, and it's evident that Mary knows that, and that she's going to give birth to the one who will change the course of the history of redemption and will bring in the kingdom of God. The song is in general terms, you'll notice as we go through it in a moment. It shows solidarity with all of God's people, that we can all enjoy this song. It's both personal at some levels, at other levels it's, it's about national things. It's both for her and for us. And it's actually most likely that Mary composed this, not spontaneously, but upon reflection. But it's an appropriate response of joy to her being blessed. And again, general truths for the people of God to experience. So the four parts to the hymn are pretty simple. In verses 46 and 47, if you're writing these things down, that's the introduction giving praise to God for his salvation. That's the theme of the song. The song is about salvation, verses 46 and 47. And then 48 to 50, she gives praise to God for three of his attributes that she has experienced. Three of his attributes in verses 48 to 50. And then in verses 51 to 53, she praises God for the social revolution to come. There's a revolution And she talks about that in verses 51 to 53. And then finally, as you would expect, verses 54 to 56 are a conclusion. Concluding praise for God's ultimate mercy toward his people. So let's look at the introduction a moment, verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She magnifies the Lord. That means makes great. She makes great the name. Not that God's name is not already great. It's just she wants to be a part of making it great. And so you magnify the Lord. You extol him for who he is. And the meaning here, of course, is Lord God, not specifically Jesus yet in this passage. But she has rejoiced in God, her Savior, noting ever since her conception, she's been rejoicing in God, her Savior. Still to this day, she composed the song and implying forever she would. The main topic is introduced, it's God's salvation, and it ties us back to Jesus from verse 31, because Jesus would save us from our sins. It's clear that Mary is praising God for his salvation and seeing it accomplished eventually in Jesus Christ. Notice that Mary needs salvation too. And she's rejoicing because she's already received it and will receive it in full. Mary too is a sinner in need of a Savior. And if Mary needs salvation, guess what? So do you and me. Her opening words remind us of David's psalm, Psalm 34. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
We're to hear her boast as humble ones and rejoice and magnify the Lord together with her to make God's name great. And this is what we do in church every single Sunday morning. In song, we magnify his name. We make his name great. In scripture that's read and preached, even now as our minds and our souls engage the word of God. And it's really up to each of us to take home this passage of scripture, this song, and continue singing it. Well, next, Mary gives praise to God for three attributes she's experienced in verses 48 to 50. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary praises God for three of his attributes, even exercised specifically on her behalf. But first of all, she notices that her status has changed from a humble social situation situation to one of the greatest of blessings. And we do count her blessed, one of the greatest people ever blessed by God in church history. From generation to generation, the church has recognized this. She's amazed at God's might, his holiness, and his mercy. His might was exercised in the miraculous virginal conception. Never heard of, never done. God's might is exercised on her behalf. His holiness is reflected in that he set her apart for something. And she's not disgraced by it, but she's honored by it. And his mercy is displayed in his covenant love to his people throughout all generations down to her, the mother of our Lord. Surely God has shown you the same in his very personal ways in your life. He's shown might on your behalf, holiness in your, on your behalf, and mercy. But above all today, we should reflect upon how all that would come to us through Jesus Christ who would come, the Christ child, and the power and the holiness and the mercy that comes to us through him. Then she goes on in verses 51 to 53 to speak about a revolution to come. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, in the original language, Greek, as it's written here, this the, the tense of the verbs change. And they signify something pretty important. It's just a simple past tense. Did you notice that? It's written here in your English translated. He has shown strength like it happened in the past. Well, this can mean a lot of different things in Greek, different than English. So it could mean it's just a general statement about what's true, about God's providence, how he generally operates and does things in the world. It could also be a way of referring to very specific events that illustrate those things. That he's done certain things in the past to show, and these refer to very specific people or events when the proud being humbled or the mighty being torn down or the rich being sent away. But the best way to take it, as most scholars, New Testament scholars would argue today, is that it means it's a way of talking about the future. This makes sense. In other words, 
It's, you could translate it, he will do these things. In fact, it is so certain he's going to do them, I'm just going to say they're already done. That's how the Greek language works. It's already done. But these things are yet to be accomplished. And again, the context has to be understood of who we're talking about. We're talking about the Messiah. So if you look back in chapter 1 of Luke, verses 32 and 33, this is who we're talking about. Speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's who we've been introduced to. That's who this whole book of Luke is about. The Messiah, Mary's holy child, would bring about a thorough moral, social, economic revolution. And in contrast to verse 50 in our passage, where mercy is toward those who fear him, this group of people that are mentioned are going to receive their just desserts in the end. God's justice. You see, the proud who have no need for others are going to be scattered abroad to waste away in oblivion and isolation. The rulers who oppress God's people are going to be brought down from their lofty positions and they're going to be subject to servitude themselves and they're going to be ruled over by the humble of the earth. That is, God's people in the kingdom. The rich who gorge themselves while other people starve, they're going to go about empty while the hungry are satisfied. Now the time frame of this great reversal of fortune is eschatological, obviously. It's at the end. It's referring to the new world order that Christ will bring in when he returns as king. And yet we also know that this great reversal has already begun with the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. That's the gospel we preach. The gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom in its present sense, its spiritual sense among us, and the kingdom as it will come in Jesus Christ's full glory. God's judgments are pronounced when we proclaim the gospel. How and when this all comes to be, how it marches towards its fulfillment, that's all God's prerogative. And no human being can fully understand how that works. But God's righteousness is established even now as His gospel transforms people and groups of people He's transformed so many of our lives. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we hear that gospel, our sins are forgiven and the burden is lifted off of our back, off of our soul, and we experience the power of God as the Spirit comes into us and starts transforming our life. Transforming us into people that love righteousness and hate sin. As the gospel goes forward, it brings people together in churches, churches like Calvary Church. And it transforms us as we minister and we live together and we encourage one another and pray for one another and our lives continue to be transformed and we evidence that the kingdom of God is in our midst. And it changes societies. It can. Places like New Jersey maybe, United States, the whole world, perhaps the whole world. You see, there's much more to come in the Gospel of Luke on this topic exactly. This is just the introduction. 
to his book. Well, then we get to the conclusion in verses 54 to 56. And we read, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, this too is still in the past tense that I mentioned to you, this predictive past tense, that things are so certain that are going to be happening in the future, we'll just say they're already done. And so she's looking with eagerness and confidence to the final fulfillment. God has helped his servant Israel in the past, showing mercy in great actions all the way from Abraham on down to his offspring, just as he promised from generation to generation to generation. And we can think about some of the greatest moments in his promises to Abraham, his promises to Moses, his promises to David. Well, Mary's now looking forward to God yet again acting in mercy and his divine Messiah, Jesus, who is about to be born. The coming of the Messiah is the culmination of mercy. It's the final fulfillment of all those promises to Abraham, all of the promises to Moses, all the promises to David, all the promises announced through the prophets go back to Genesis 12:3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Mary, of course, is speaking not just in personal terms here, but a blessing for the world to come through her, a lowly Jewish girl, now greatly exalted. The prophet Micah predicted this time frame when he wrote, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. And of course, in the New Testament, we understand with clarity what is being referred to. In Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Well, the final word of Mary's song is chosen for emphasis. The final word, even in English here, is forever. God's mercy in Christ is forever. If you believe in Him, your sins are forgiven forever. If you believe in Jesus Christ and have a relationship with God through him, you have a relationship with God forever. You're going to be with God forever. And then in verse 56, we read that Mary returns to Nazareth, goes back up north to her home. It seems in the storyline that she leaves before John is born, but we can't be certain here. But we see the promise that those who believe in God and believe his word, they have great joy in their life. 
So let us magnify and rejoice with Mary, sharing her amazement at God's salvation in Christ. What an amazing way God is determined to bring about our salvation. Let us praise Him for these three same attributes, His power, His holiness, and His mercy, because they're also on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Let us look to the kingdom's consummation. It's coming in fullness in all of its judgments, yes. Praise God for judgment and all of his blessings, and we praise God for his blessings. Let's consider the forgiving mercy of God that it is forever in Christ. It's eternal. All of our sins can be forgiven in him. That's the promise to Abraham that comes to us by faith. God's blessings belong to those who fear and honor and worship him. In fact, if you just look back on her song in verse 50, from generation to generation. From generation to generation, we see God continually showing his salvation mercies and blessing those like Mary who simply take him at his word. Now, we've repeatedly noted this morning verse 45 in various ways because it's the key part of the story. God blessed Mary because she believed. That's what Elizabeth says, in contrast to her husband who didn't, who, of course, does now. But think about this for a minute. She believed the word of God. Well, you have the word of God in your hands. What's your relationship with the word of God? With the scriptures? Because your relationship with the scriptures really indicates what your relationship with God is all about. How strongly do you believe them and believe in the God who wrote them? Do you pick up your Bible and read it with faith and in love, and then put it down in prayer and confidence and joy? Does your soul find peace, being the servant of God and confident that he's going to fulfill everything he promised in this book? Now, these questions are not meant to be indictments for us because most of us are living in such a blessing from day to day. It should be a great encouragement to us and a confirmation that we really are among the most blessed people in the world. I mean, you have the Bible, you have Scripture, and you have faith in Jesus Christ. God blesses those who, like Mary, believe his word. Now, did you notice something else in our passage today? Did you notice that every single character expressed the same emotion? Every single character in our story expressed the emotion of joy. Let me go back and look at the text. Elizabeth is filled with joy when Mary visits, and it's expressed by her question of astonishment in verse 43, overcome with joy. And you think about John in utero, filled with joy at Jesus visiting him, expressed by leaping in his mother's womb. And then you have Mary who's filled with joy and it's expressed because she comes out with a song of praise. And it's noted in the very first lines in verses 46 and 47. Actually, there are more joy words in the Gospel of Luke than any other New Testament book. The phrase praising God occurs 19 times in Luke and in Acts, which he also wrote, more than all the rest of the New Testament more than all the rest of the New Testament. And this activity of praising God is seen at the very beginning of Luke's gospel 
and at the very end if you read the last paragraph. The prologue or the introduction in Luke's gospel has four songs in it. We sing songs because we're happy most of the time. And that's what's going on in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. We looked at the first song today. There are three more songs to look at. You see, great joy overcomes people who believe in Jesus, even just simply retelling a story like this that's so familiar that we all know so well. And we can take, it, we can take this story home and apply it to ourselves with joy. That's the take home. Be happy. Be happy in Jesus. Also, praising God and being blessed with his joy is connected to receiving Jesus Christ. That means putting your faith in him, trusting him with your salvation, wanting him to take away your sins. In fact, Luke makes this point that faith in Christ is tied to joy 32 times in his gospel. He will connect them, and we will see them as we go through. If you don't have the joy that's been expressed in our passage this morning, but you want it, you should really receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior because there's so much joy to be had. And then you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, Mary is our model as Luke begins his story. Oh, she was a model of discipleship we learned a couple weeks ago. But this time she's a model of joy for us. And by her example, Luke wants to move us forward in being joyful in Jesus. In fact, that's really part of discipleship, actually. Discipleship's a huge term that covers a lot of things. But part of being a, a good disciple, a good faithful follower of Jesus, is to be filled with joy. The scriptures tell us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So this is a character quality that as disciples, as followers of Jesus, those of us who want to be more like Jesus, then joy needs to be part of our character. So hopefully... In large measure, Luke has accomplished his goals in writing among us this morning, so many years later, and us at Calvary Church, that may God, by his grace, grant us a greater and a more committed joy as people by our faith in his word, because that's where it comes from. And you know, if you find yourself in need of more joy in believing the word, I would just encourage you to go back to this example often. It's here for you. It's Scripture. And God will use it. The Spirit will use it in your life to bring joy into your mind and your soul. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue in our worship this morning. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much for the Scripture that you have given to us, one of your greatest gifts to the church, to us even specifically. And we're so thankful we have your Word that teaches us who you are, that you reveal that to us. You reveal to us how you work, how you grant salvation, what you're going to be doing in the future. And you ultimately give us joy in yourself. And pray, Lord, that you would increase our relationship to you by increasing our relationship to your scripture. That we would strongly believe what we, we read so that we would more strongly believe in you and you would increase our faith. Cause us to read in faith and in love and in hope and fill us with joy. Give us peace in our spirits as your servants. And rededicate our lives. We rededicate our lives to your service this morning. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.